0: Thank you. I'm your host, Nick Malkoutsis. I'll be guiding you through what will be the final instalment in this series of our podcast. We thought it would be nice to wrap up our debut run of shows with a special edition. Some of you will remember that a few weeks ago, we put together a 10-year anniversary retrospective of Greece's incredible Euro 2004 victory. This episode will also look back at another 10-year anniversary but one which saw Greece end up on the losing side. Instead of celebrations, there was pain, discord, and austerity. In May 2010, the Greek government agreed the first of three international bailouts to prevent it from defaulting. The global financial crisis that preceded this moment prompted an economic downturn and a debt crisis in Europe. Greece was the weakest link in the eurozone chain due to its macroeconomic imbalances and structural faults. The early years of the euro had been good for Greece in terms of prosperity, but the easy borrowing and loose fiscal policies caught up with the country as soon as the financial turbulence hit. By April 2010, Athens could no longer borrow from the international markets. It had to turn to its fellow eurozone member states and the IMF, for help. The first bailout program for 110 billion euros was put together. This assistance though came with a high price. Public spending was slashed, revenue raising measures were introduced and the economy tumbled. Unemployment soared, young Greeks left the country, the far-right gained a foothold and populism flourished. Some lives were lost, others were destroyed and many were changed forever. 2010 marked the first stage of a traumatic journey for Greece. In April of that year, the Prime Minister at the time, George Papandreou, announced from the remote island of Castellorizo that Greece would be reaching out for help. Against an idyllic backdrop, he said that Greece was embarking on a new odyssey, but that it would reach Ithaca safely. We should have known at the time that we were in for a rough ride. It took Odysseus 10 years to return to his island and he lost all his travelling companions along the way. So today we will be looking back on the first bailout, how it came about and what kind of legacy it left. I'm sure it will be an illuminating retrospective, although I have to admit a painful one as well. Before I introduce you to our guests, let's remind ourselves of what the turmoil Greece went through sounded like, with a little help from some of the protagonists and journalist Malcolm Brabant, who was reporting for the BBC at the time.
1: right now is an attempt to storm Parliament. You can hear the uh, stun stung grenades
2: going off. And it's going off on the right hand side over there of the at the uh,
3: mezzanine area just above Parliament and you can hear stung grenades and tear gas has been fired because what has happened is that some people try to get up the stairs for a few uh for
2: about an hour now it's been a fairly sort of relaxed costum
1: en Europe sur un mécanisme de soutien en cas de crise est un succès des États de la zone euro.
2: Danke schön Herr Präsident, liebe Kolleginnen und Kollegen, meine Damen und Herren. Es liegen Tage hinter Europa, die an Dramatik kaum noch zu überbieten sind. Nicht nur wegen
3: Το μήνυμα που θα λέει: Go back, κυρία Merkel. Go back, κυρία Go back, και κύριοι τη Νομεκλατούρα τη Ευρώπη! Go back, τη Η Ελλάδα δεν είναι πειραματόζο.
0: What? What you have to know about the Greeks?
3: Is that they have a real record of resistance. They overthrew a dictatorship um, just over 25 about 40 years ago. They get out of the streets. It's in their
0: DNA to fight. And what you're witnessing right now is a very strong, powerful, popular protest. Whether it turns into an uprising, of course, is another matter. So I'm glad to say that I've got three seasoned crisis, Greek crisis watchers to uh, join me for this uh, 10-year anniversary retrospective of the first Greek bailout. We start off with Megan Green, who is a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and is joining us from Boston. Hi, Meg.
2: Hi. It's great to be here. Great to
0: have you with us. Great. Uh, We also have, in Rome, Marcus Walker, who's the South Europe Bureau Chief for the Wall Street Journal and who spent a lot of time in Athens covering the crisis. Hi, Marcus. Kalimera. (laughs) Thank you for being with us. And finally, uh, you've heard him before on the Agora. Uh, He's the macro in Macropolis, the co-founder of our site. Yanis Mouzakis is joining us from Cyprus. Hi, Yanis. Hello, everyone. So, guys, thank you very much for uh, being uh, with me on this, um, I, I would say, probably quite sort of som- sombre occasion, looking back on the 10-year t- anniversary of the first Greek payout There isn't really a lot uh, to to be cheery about, but I think uh, it's useful that uh, we, we take a look back now that the dust has settled a bit. And, of course, this year, uh, the 10-year anniversary came up in uh, uh, April, May time, but obviously there were much more important things and more serious things going on in the world, sadly, because of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. But it is a chance to look back and see if we can make sense of some of the things that happened in Greece 10 years ago and which whose reverberations are still being felt here in the country and elsewhere and probably will be for a number of years. And I want to start off by really sort of going back to basics, going back to the, the, the roots of uh, this issue um, and as I'm sure you know, still in Greece, 10 years on, I would say there isn't a consensus, or if there is, it's a barely one, about what drove Greece into this crisis, um, whether it was the woeful management of uh, public finances, whether it was various excesses, or whether there was a flawed uh, architecture in the Eurozone, or whether there are other outside pressures um that caused this uh, dramatic uh, derailment that we've all been uh, living with, covering and talking and analysing uh, for so many years. Uh, Marcus, if I can start with you, if you try to sum up what the trigger was for Greece being shut out from the international markets, being left on the verge of bankruptcy and then having to go to fellow uh, Eurozone member states and the IMF to... Appeal for some kind of bailout program, what would the, the, the factors that you would highlight most?
1: Well, you know, when foreign correspondents such as myself started trying to figure out that question uh, in late 2009. We visited Greece and tried to figure out uh, the problems on the ground, the local problems of corruption and political clientelism and overregulation of markets and some of the you know, absurd inefficiencies in the Greek economy and local fiscal indiscipline and discipline and, and so on. And, and that, that's all useful, a useful part of the picture. But it, it took me personally longer to understand how to think about. The combination of the, the systemic level and, and the national level because i think that the crisis really stems from the interaction of of the system that is the euro as a system and international capital markets which were going through a very kind of um happy-go-lucky phase in in the 2000s on the one hand and national level flaws. and in retrospect i think that the Those crazy years in the 2000s when the global capital markets were throwing cheap credit at uh, anybody, no matter how how bad a borrower they were. Um, And and the euro, which facilitated these massive capital flows within Europe, um, those two things had the effect of exaggerating the economic and, and governance flaws of countries all over Europe, um, not only debtor countries such as Greece, but also some of the the creditor countries. It had the effect of um, exaggerating the distortions that already existed and in some cases have been around for a long time. So basically, those floods of cheap credit in the 2000s found their way to the, um, the weakest, worst run, most irresponsible sectors of every economy. And that's why you ended up with a banking bubble in Ireland, with a, a real estate development bubble in Spain. And in Greece, it was all about politics. It was about the, the culture of, of clientelism and, and weak governance institutions that failed to set any checks and balances on, on, on fiscal mismanagement. So, you know, when we talk about the flaws of you know, Greek governance, it's, it's those on their own don't explain the crisis because they have been the case for decades. So what was it that triggered it? It was that that kind of a, a governance structure was very vulnerable to having a huge credit bubble in the environment of the 2000s. And then, of course, the trigger was the global crisis that, was, that came after the collapse of Lehman Brothers. And we must remember that the, um, that crisis in, in Europe first began outside the eurozone. Uh, there were a bunch of countries that fell victim to the, uh, the flight of capital. Um, in a ring of countries that were outside the euro, such as Iceland and Romania and Hungary and Latvia and so on. And then I remember that that time, 2008, 9 when euro members felt, well, phew, thank God we're in the euro, we're safe. But in, in, in a second phase, that capital flights came inside the euro and started picking off one vulnerable country after another. Now, was Greece most obviously the most vulnerable country? Actually, that was a bit of a surprise. Um, we journalists and also governments were focusing on other countries, including Ireland and even Austria, with its banking exposure to Eastern Europe. It wasn't completely obvious at the time that Greece was going to be the first dom- domino to fall.
0: Yeah, I think I think that the situation you described there, looking back on it now in Greece, it was very much a time when sort of decision makers and the public having Greece having joined the euro, they felt that it's we've sort of hitched our wagon to the German economic powerhouse and now we don't need to worry uh, about anything. And they completely took their eye off the ball.
1: Yeah, that, that sense of invulnerability through being inside the euro is, of course, one of the things that allowed... We encouraged Greek governments to just relax and progressively give up fiscal discipline, which really started in the early 2000s under the Simitis government and then got progressively worse under the Karamanlis government. So basically, both left and right were to blame for that progressively worsening fiscal discipline. Meg,
0: would you agree with uh, uh, Marcus? Was this as much about the sort of bad lending from outside as it was about bad policymaking in Greece?
2: Yeah, so I would agree with that. I have to say that um, I knew Greece would be in trouble when I started covering it at the Economist Intelligence Unit back in 2006. And um, I opened up the big forecasting workbook uh, when I started there, and I looked at Greece's current account deficits and just thought, well, God, this can't last. This is totally unsustainable. Um, And sure enough, I think Greece's current account balance continues to reveal rigidities in the Greek economy, so it's a good indicator um, for how much structural reforms have actually kicked in and, um, and supported the economy. And then also with most countries, when you are forecasting, you import the historical data and it just comes in and you forecast off the back of that. But in the Greece model, we had actually retrofitted it so that you could change the historical data because nobody believed the data that we were importing um, from Greek statistics authorities. Um, So, you know, that was another, yeah, that was another red flag, right? And then finally, as I was writing reports, you know, the political events um, that you would write about every month um, were just unlike any other report I was writing for a Western European country. It really revealed the massive deficit in trust in the government that existed in Greece. So I think all three of those factors, the current account balance, Um, The government budget figures and this deficit of trust um, were domestic factors that um, eventually kicked in. But, you know, I thought it was pretty clear that this this couldn't last forever. Um, But I think Marcus is also right that it's partly something to do with the structure of the euro. I mean, the euro as it existed back in 2010 was a crisis mechanism um, because you had this monetary union with no fiscal or political union. Um, and it's hard to overstate how far European authorities have come since then um, in figuring out how to support vulnerable countries in the eurozone if we had all of the mechanisms that we have today back in 2010 greece would not have had its crisis and that's sort of the great tragedy in this um greece had the great misfortune of being the first one um if for all the reasons i've already stated but it was the first one to go into a a bailout and so all the mistakes i think were made on greece and none of this architecture really existed so i think um, Marcus is right, that it's this interaction between domestic factors, but also the fact that, you know, investors all thought that, um, you know, a German bond and a Greek government bond were worth the same thing. They had the same borrowing costs for years and years. Looking at the fundamentals, that's uh, sort of outrageous, <laughs> but um, and, and investors eventually figured it out. Um, but without, you know, an optimal currency area, without fiscal union and political union, um, the euro... Was always going to be a crisis mechanism. And I have to say, I don't think they've totally figured this out yet, but they've, uh, you know, European yeah. policymakers have taken big steps.
1: Well, it,
0: it does seem sort of crazy looking back on it, this sort of market um, misjudgment. I mean, I was just going through the the timeline of events uh, yesterday, preparing for the show. And uh, if you remember, on the 20th of the, October in 2009, the then Greek finance minister, Yorgos Papakostadinou, announced that the deficit. Would probably be at 12.5% rather than a much lower figure than the previous government stated. And a couple of days later, Fitch downgraded Greece to A minus. It's it's incredible <laughs> to think that Greece was at A minus at the end of uh, 2009, given what followed.
2: Yeah, the credit ratings agencies have been pretty behind the switch, I have to say, <laughs> in yeah, all of this. Yeah. But yeah, it's astounding.
0: Yeah, Yanis, you've written many times about the fiscal derailment in Greece. Could you give us a bit of an insight into that, into how you know public finances got out of control in this build-up to yeah. 2009 and then 2010?
3: Yeah, and, and for me, this is also the, the the main event that triggered the crisis. Because like the guy said, uh, in spite of all this, you know, the structural issues, the issues that they've been accumulating throughout the years, the flows of the euro... All this was working as long as somebody was uh, willing for a decade to finance the government deficits. Uh, I think we experienced a a bit of an emerging uh, uh, market crisis of a sudden stop because uh, the the main event for for me was that uh, markets realized that the statistics that were presented throughout 2009 and potentially shaking the confidence for everything they have seen before that uh, were not true. As you said, it was the end of October that a a month ago uh, the Greek finance minister of the previous government had gone to the Eurogroup and said our deficit would be 6% and a month later we said if we carry on like that it's going to end up being more than 12% of GDP and actually it ended up being 15%. I mean the deficit that year was 35 billion. So At the time that the whole world was basically in a bit of a shock from the global crisis, uh, Greece came out saying that you cannot trust what we've been reporting. And over the next five years, you need to refinance debt and a deficit of about 250 billion euros. So I I don't think anyone could solve that uh, equation. And that was going progressively towards some sort of bailout. And as you said, Throughout 2009, because the government was completely unprepared about uh, the the crisis that was unfolding and the, it, it had created the impression that the economy is fortified, uh, we, we reached that deficit because the, the revenue is completely collapsed. Uh, Expenses had to increase as unemployment was rising and so on. So it was a situation that uh, I think from that point on, it was only a matter of time before uh, a bailout and a very sizable one would be on the cards.
0: And that moment came in uh, April, towards May uh, of 2010 and in fact on the 2nd of May the first 110 billion euro bailout uh, was agreed, passed in Greek Parliament a few days later and of course uh, we had protests uh, on the streets and we had the the tragic event of uh, employees of Marfin Bank being killed in a fire and they're building in central Athens, and that's the moment when I think we, we all realise, at least in Greece, that, that we're entering a very dark uh, period for the country, both on a national level and on, on a societal level as well, an individual level. Um, let's let's have a bit of a look at this first bailout. I, I think it's now generally accepted, and it was quite interesting, after Greece completed its third, its third bailout, we had all these... Uh, retrospective looks by all the European institutions and various peoples suddenly starting to admit various failures in the design of the programs and the execution and so on and so forth, which had been obvious for a while, but no one really wanted to admit to publicly. But now that we we have a chance, let's look back at this uh, first uh, bailout. Um, What were the key problems? Was it that the financial envelope was too small? Was it that it front loaded austerity measures? Uh, was it that the IMF was involved and therefore it came with its particular uh, mindset and policy uh, toolkit? Um, Marcus, what's your view? What, what were the key di- di- faults in the program?
1: You know, I think there was a a Greek problem and a European problem. So to take the Greek one first, I think the the basic issue was that there was a trilemma here. You could not have all of three things. No debt restructuring, a limited loan package for Greece, and a realistic austerity plan. You kind of had to choose two of those three. And I think this is worth unpacking a little bit. Why do I say that? Well, Greece had a huge annual deficit, budget deficit, that needed financing, and it also had a ton of bonds that were coming, falling due. That means that to finance Greece, to stop it from going bankrupt, um, you needed a hell of a lot of money. The problem was that the Germans really found this politically hard to digest. They said in order to sell this politically, we have to keep the total size of this bailout down. And rather arbitrarily, they insisted that uh, Europe couldn't lend more than $100 You had to keep it to less than that. Now, the problem is that Greece was running annual deficits of 35 billion. It had tens of billions of bonds falling due, and 100 billion didn't really go very far. So the the, the Greeks, uh, with their financial advisor Lazard, said, look, we, we could fix this by postponing the maturities on the bond, that re- reduce the financing need. Um, but the, the Germans and the ECB and the French flatly said, no, no way, no bond restructuring, because that cause, systemic panic in, in Europe about like who's going to be the next country to default, and as well as chaos in the European banking system and maybe one or two other banks might have to be bailed out again because of losses in Greece. So no debt restructuring. The problem was, as the IMF pointed out to the Germans, that you don't have very much financing to uh, bring down Greece's deficit in a smooth way. So the Germans said, well then the Greeks just have to bring it down very, very sharply. And that's how you ended up with an unrealistic austerity in which Greece had to go from a primary deficit that was thought to be over 8% of GDP, in reality it was over 10%, that was supposed to become a primary surplus of 6% of GDP within four years, right? And and yet the forecast of the program relied on Greece pulling out of recession and growing within two years by 2012. Now, while um, improving the budget balance by 16 percentage points of GDP in four years. Now that is simple science fiction it was I was absolutely a mission impossible. Everybody uh, knew that that kind of radical austerity was going to crash the economy. so they made up uh, fictional economic forecasts um, in order to just make the math somehow work or at least presentable and to fulfill these two other games uh, two other aims to avoid debt restructuring, and to keep the total loan package down below 100 billion. In the end, as we all remember, it was 90 billion from Europe, plus 30 from the IMF. So the the, the strains in in that package were, I think, the original sin. Um, It it was an unachievable, unworkable program. And all of the problems that, or many of the problems at least, that followed in subsequent years were were due to uh, the flaws in that setup. Now, the irony is that by trying to avoid the choice about the trilemma, the European creditors ended up failing on all three points. They ended up with a massive debt restructuring uh, and and with a hugely inflated loan package that ended up as, what was it again, something like 250 billion euros. So it was was a comprehensive failure in the end. Now, the problem is that in order to do something else, in order to um, restructure Greek bonds, Europe would have, had, would have needed much bigger, stronger firewalls to protect other countries from contagion than it had at the time. And Europe was not politically nimble enough to build, build up a firewall quickly enough so that uh, the decision makers in Germany and elsewhere felt, well, we don't really have another option. The result was that Greece was basically told to take one for the team. Sorry, we know we're sending you on a suicide mission, but anything else will just cause far too much uh, systemic chaos.
2: Just to piggyback on that, um, <clears throat> so I teach a course on sovereign debt crises um, with George Papa Constantino and Bob Tra, who was you know from the IMF um, in Athens for a while. And um, there are two interesting anecdotes from that. First of all, in going through kind of uh, fiscal dynamics and sovereign debt crises, you know, Bob has said a few times, we you, you never make a country uh, make a primary balance adjustment of more than two percentage points a year um, because it's otherwise just too harsh. And as Marcus just laid out the math, they were demanding that Greece make an adjustment of roughly double that every year. Um, and we're suggesting that Greece would grow in the meantime, it was just never going to happen. Um, but also I'll say we, we kind of run a, a um, scenario with the students um, negotiating the first Greek bailout. So we split them up into students and the Troika. Um, Sounds like fun. It is. But what's really interesting <laughs> is how close it ends up to being what really happens. So we watched the students who were from the Troika look at the numbers and, and they, you know, we didn't say it was Greece. They just had the numbers and knew they were representing, you know, borrowers and creditors. And they said, oh, my God, this country is, you know, its debt is completely unsustainable. Um, this whole dynamic is unsustainable. We've got to have a write down. And then someone else says, well, hang on, our banks might be full of this paper. So we can't have a write down. Let's just pretend it's a liquidity crisis and not a solvency crisis and give them a bailout, And which is pretty much how it went. And so to Marcus's last point, you know, We didn't have a firewall, but we also at that time had no idea really who was sitting on what. So we didn't know how much German and French banks had in Greek government bonds. And so the idea of a debt restructuring was just taken off the table immediately because there might be blowback. But it's shocking now, given how much we look at this as economists um, and as financial analysts, that we really had no idea who was sitting on what paper in the Eurozone. Um, and a debt restructuring uh, upfront debt restructuring would have been the appropriate thing to do. And honestly, I think going forward, the the IMF has apologized for this. I think um, policymakers have learned that that's necessary. But because Greece was the first one, it really was the guinea
0: pig. Meg, from from the work that you're doing, is there in, any indication that Greece could have leveraged its position a bit more? effectively. And, you know, to address the elephant in the room, was the option of a of a return to the drachma, really ever on the table? Was it ever really a possibility?
2: So um, we know that Greece could have leveraged its position just in that the German and French were terrified about what would happen if Greece were to default. Um, their financial systems would have been pretty decimated by that so greece in retrospect i think had a bit more power than it felt but at the time you know we didn't know who was even going to participate in a bailout so and creditors were pulling their money so greece was in a desperate position but but had a bit of power and was grexit ever on the table well we know now it was on the table at different points in this crisis but was it really a good option for greece i think that's a different question um and a, you know, a return to the drachma would have meant uh, you know a massive devaluation of the currency. Um, it would have been harrowing for Greece, um, but I'm not sure it would have been much worse if it had been done at the very beginning than the years of depression that Greece has gone through. So um, was it a viable option? Maybe at the very beginning, but once Greece went down this path of um, extreme austerity and attempts at adjustment, uh, it you know, it was no longer worth it. But I think maybe at the beginning, um, and then Greece would have had a horrible year, a sharp fall, but then it might have bounced back much more quickly.
0: Okay, I think that's a good point to take a short break and come back to discuss some of the legacies of the first program, which was signed 10 years ago this year.
4: listening to the agora podcast
0: by macropolis you can find us on acast spotify and apple
2: podcasts for the time being we'll soon be available in more places in the meantime please do subscribe rate us and send us your comments you can also visit our website www.macropolis.gr for more information about our work that's macropolis with a c
0: now back to the show So welcome back to the second half of uh, the Agora podcast where we're discussing the first Greek bailout signed 10 years ago. Um, And we've been looking at why Greece ended up uh, having to ask for assistance from the Eurozone and the IMF. And now perhaps have a little, we want to have a little bit of a look at where things went wrong and some of the legacies that the uh, bailout left behind. And I want to uh, come to you, Yanis, first and ask, if you think that maybe the level of austerity that the first bailout demanded was one of the key reasons that things started to go so wrong and in the end, the first program became a bit of a failure. Uh, just looking at the table of um, fiscal consolidation that we, we put together a while ago, in 2010, Greece took 20 billion euros of uh, fiscal measures. That was uh, 8.5% of GDP. It fell to 8. percent Eight percent in 2011 and 6.4 percent in 2012. But that's a lot of austerity. That's a lot of revenue and uh, expenditure policies. There was that really the main reason that things started to go wrong.
3: Yeah, certainly. Like the the guy said earlier, and uh, you know Megan was also is also running a a simulation. And even if we don't want to get into the whole uh, you know fiscal multipliers discussion, uh, I think that with uh, the latest internal evaluation that the ESM did a couple of years sorry a couple of months ago. I think every single key player that participated in those programs has admitted that there were not really you know Greek bailouts. was it was a bailout the first one that was essential for the eurozone to prepare to put in place the mechanisms, the EFSF, the ESM, uh, you know, fortified institutions in order to deal with the crisis that after Greece unfolded, because Greece was not the only country that ended up in a in a bailout. Uh, for me, the main problem is that setting it uh, setting that program up essentially for failure turned it into a, a poison chalice in the society. And aside from the fiscal consolidation aspect of the program, there was also a a serious reform angle. But uh, unfortunately, people associated all the reform efforts with either loss of income or jobs because the economy was tanking at an accelerated pace. And uh, that was a big opportunity missed, uh, not only to you know, re- reform the economy, but also create a bit more of an engaging culture of the, of the changes that were needed. And they were exposed when the crisis broke in 2009 and 2010
0: yeah I think it's an important point to stress that uh, you know it was often said in in the first years of the Greek crisis that uh, the political instability in Greece is the problem when you compare Greece to Ireland uh, Portugal or uh, other program countries but I think it's important to highlight that the the, the the demands put on Greece and the political Class in Greece and society meant that political instability was essentially built into the first program because the, the kind of policies and the level of austerity which we you know we just highlighted that policymakers had to implement meant that they weren't going to be around very long because you know to put it very bluntly people were getting
3: very angry, very pissed off <laughs> yeah. with what was going but on. Naturally, if you think about it, the the Greek political system itself is not designed on consensus building, then presented it with a, a, a program that nobody wanted to even come near or associate themselves with it. And then if you add to that the, you know, the opportunism of creating the you know, anti-MOU front that clearly would lead to political gains, and we saw that it took uh, basically Samaras and Tsipras into power, uh, it's, it's no surprise that nobody wanted to associate themselves with that program.
0: Marcus, you've been fortunate enough in your life to have followed uh, Greek politics uh, quite closely. Uh, you, you're never getting those years back. <laughs> um, but to, to, to what extent do you think that um, the 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 weakness of the Greek political class, whether it was either sort of the the, the inability to uh, shape uh, a better program to uh, push forward with reforms to have this, you know, this concept of ownership of the program, which uh, I, I think is a very sort of debatable issue. Um, to, to what extent did, did that really derail the first program and, and really lead to this kind of collapse? And it, we should point out, you know, that the Papandreou government fell apart by uh, late two 2000- thousand. And by 2012, the interim Papadimos government, led by the former central banker, Lucas Papadimos, had gone. We'd had two rounds of elections and this three party coalition, centre-right, New Democracy, centre-left, uh, PASOK, and this new party, again, on the centre-left, Democratic left, came together.
1: And again, they didn't last very long either. Well, I think the program would have failed to achieve its, uh, its metrics in any country because it asked Greece to turn a massive deficit into a massive surplus in a few years while also pulling out of recession and growing um, thanks to microeconomic reforms. Now, you know, that is economic fiction that would have failed in Switzerland. Uh, but instead, uh, the Eurozone chose to put this, you know, the, the, the most burdensome of all bailout programs on the Euro member was probably the the least suited political class and also the weakest public administration. So, of course, the whole thing broke down. Of course, it led to a chain reaction. I mean, the, the economy, which, you know, for, for far too long, there had been um, a deep entanglement between the public and the private sector. Um, you know, as, as a clever Greek economist once said, the public sector is not really public and the private sector is not really private. You know, everything relied on sort of incestuous networks, um, so, of course, when there, there was this massive slashing and burning of, of the public sector, it led to a general economic collapse and it turned a fiscal crisis into a full blown economic depression, which created massive social strains, which quickly led to a political breakdown. So by the summer of 2011, basically within one year, uh, the Papandreou government had run out of, of stamina and was desperately looking for some kind of a national unity um, coalition now that was eventually achieved of course um, in late 2011 early 2012 for a few brief months there there was a national unity coalition but it could achieve very little in the end it really just implemented it, it signed up to and implemented the second bailout program now i doubt that a bipartisan government would have fared much much better and and greece was very ill-suited to having that kind of bipartisan government
4: It's worth pointing out just quickly that it's not like the Greek government was really calling the shots anymore. Um, In terms of these big adjustments, that was, you know, those adjustments were imposed externally. And, you know, by that time, whoever was in government, uh, whatever kind of coalition they had, uh, their hands were pretty tied. And we saw that later in 2016, right, with the referendum that we had, um, you know, there is an attempt to kind of stamp Greece's authority on a program that completely failed. And once again, the Greek government wasn't calling the shots.
1: Yes, Greece, Greece was more of an, an object than, than a subject. I think there were only about two things that Greek governments could really do. One is they could delay, they could drag their feet, and they could drag out the whole process, which all of them tried to do as a negotiating tactic. And the second thing was that within the targets, they had some leeway in, in how they implemented stuff, for example, rely more on spending cuts or more on tax increases. And so th- those kinds of things changed in the co- in the course of the bailout. But overall, I think Meg, you're absolutely right. You know, Greece was not the decider here.
0: All right. If we, if we take that as a given, then uh,
1: what level absolutely. of responsibility the, the outside
0: lies outside All of the main policy branches, whether it's for um, institutions in of
1: in Greece from um, mid 2010 onwards. Uh, creditors owned Greece. You'd be breaking your own uh, it. So the bulk of the responsibility of, uh, has to align with
0: them. Now, the and creditors with, argued for um, years that the eurozone's the political leadership at the because time was the uh, Angela
1: Merkel, the but German firstly, Chancellor, they were really the talking about the, the non-implementation of, of microeconomic of reforms, just making them, you know, Greece, the, the dairy
0: market... Uh, if we're sort like of looking at it in the uh, cold light, do they also need their feet get and they didn't get, know, to get part of, best of the and so on. Blame if we but it's doubtful
1: that. that implementing microeconomic reforms w- would have made very much difference to the overall uh, macroeconomic uh, you know, disaster that unfolded. The Greek political class, did very much implement the drastic fiscal plan. They did exactly what what they were told. So it's simply not true that Greece didn't implement the program.
4: I, I think it's questionable how much Greece managed to uh, open up its product and labor markets. There was clearly some progress, but if you look at Greece's current account balance today, it's you know back in deficit. Uh, and given the depression Greece went through, it the, you know that should be massively in surplus. Um, so that just suggests. You know, that there's more work to do, but I would agree with Marcus, a lot of the responsibility lies with the creditors. I mean, there's a joke that the IMF stands for it's mostly fiscal. And sure enough, they took sort of a program off the shelf that's used often um, and imposed it on Greece where it was never going to work. Um, And I also think that Germany in particular holds a lot of responsibility for refusing to even talk about a debt restructuring for ages. Now eventually there was one, but the damage had already been done for Greece. And I think that the the position that the creditors took um in mainly Germany also set up this kind of narrative, not just for Greece, but it bled into other countries too that with this morality tale whereby, you know, the Greeks had made their own bed and the northern Europeans were coming, you know, riding on white horses. Uh, to help them out. And, uh, you know, I think a morality tale was completely inappropriate in this case. And we've seen it play out even in the current coronavirus crisis to some degree. Germany is no longer at the helm, but, you know, at the beginning of the crisis, certainly Germany's tone was not encouraging. So I think that that's been a huge mistake as well.
0: That's a great sort of segue into talking about the the legacy of uh, that, that first MOU and I I guess uh, uh, one brief way of answering that question is that its legacy was the second MOU and and then the third MOU. But obviously there were much uh, uh, bigger issues and much bigger. um, I mean, it left a much bigger imprint. And Meg uh, mentioned there, Marcus, this debate that became very uh, polarized, binary within the eurozone about you know the hardworking north and the lazy south. Of course, we had the famous comments, uh, although he later tried to um, uh, sort of uh, embellish them a, a little bit and, and to justify them from uh, the Eurogroup chief, uh, Jeroen Bloom about uh, the, the South supposedly spending all its uh, money on booze and uh, women. Um, but we see that we're still living with this Today, even as Meg mentioned in the, in the debate about the EU re- recovery package for the coronavirus uh, pandemic, it, it hasn't really gone away.
1: No, and, and it's very hard to eradicate these um, stereotypes because they are decades old, and some would argue you know, centuries old. Uh, but the, in, in terms of economic policy, the, these things—the you know, the, the, divide or the mistrust between northern creditor countries that believe deeply in hard money policies and southern debtor countries that are seen in the north as prone to you know, monetary financing and inflation and deficits. And so on. That, that divide has been around since at least the 1970s. It was there in the 1990s. It's the reason why um, when countries negotiated the Maastricht Treaty, they ended up with um, you know, the, the fiscal pact. That was basically about German mistrust of Italy and, and the south. And the Greek bailout in 2010 was a moment when this mistrust exploded into the open um, in the the domestic politics, northern credited countries. And we've seen a repeat of of it to some extent this spring, uh, particularly in in the Netherlands, which seems to have learned nothing and forgotten nothing. Um, But it is pleasing to see that Germany, at least, was able to distinguish between um, the coronavirus pandemic, which is an external shock for which nobody can be blamed and which has hit Greece, despite its strenuous fiscal efforts. So the, the Germans seem to learn that you know, on this occasion there is no room for the kind of morality tales that marred the bailouts.
0: Yeah, obviously, Germany is a country that you follow closely as well, Marcus, having uh, lived there in, in, in Berlin. It seems that the debate there is a bit more nuanced in this crisis than it was uh, in the last one.
1: Very much so, and um, it, it's remarkable how both the leadership level, the anglo merkel and key advisors around her, but also German public opinion have seen this year's issues very differently from how they saw the bailout of 10 years ago or the, you know, the Greek crisis years that followed. And, and I do think that um, the Germans have taken on board the many years of strong international criticism because people in, in Europe and beyond were strongly criticizing Germany's management of the Greek crisis and the wider Eurozone crisis. And the Germans stuck to their guns and their red lines for many years, but I I think that um, some of the better arguments, the international arguments did penetrate the the German government and and its way of of thinking. It it has understood, and Angela Merkel has has clearly understood that it's in Germany's interest for um, the Eurozone as a whole to recover from economic shocks. And that if um, the Southern half of Europe is stuck in a depression, then Ultimately, the single market and the euro are not going to be sustainable, and that's very bad for Germany too. And that's why Merkel did a big U-turn on the question of fiscal transfers and swung behind um, a basically French position, that you have to have some sort of um, central fiscal capacity in the eurozone that can uh, help the, the whole region to collectively fight against shocks.
0: Meg, from, from when you sit, do you see a, a shift in terms of at least how the if not necessarily the politics, but the, the economic policy debate and the tools that are being looked at and uh, adopted, ha- show that the eurozone, the EU, has learnt from some of the mistakes at least made during the previous crisis.
4: So there has definitely been progress, um, I would say. Whether it's a fundamental shift or not um, is a bigger question. So you know we have the we have the ECB buying up assets now. We have the Right, monetary transactions, which are still available. We have the ESM, the European uh, Stability Mechanism, which no longer has these crushing conditions attached to it. That's a really big step that's just happened in this crisis. And then we have this EU recovery fund, which I actually think is much more significant politically than it is macroeconomically. So it involves EU borrowing and then providing grants and loans. To countries um, and and it's based on their need, based on how hard they've been hit by the pandemic. So that is solidarity like we've never seen before. Um, so that's a big step. Uh, it's 750 billion euros in total. So is that you know a game changer? Probably not. I would say it's probably not big enough. Um, and also, you know, it's it's meant to be a temporary one-time emergency program um, but the next time there's a major crisis, they already have this thing on the table. They can just dust it off and use it again. so I think that's positive. It doesn't deal with legacy debts, though, so Greece and Italy have come into this current crisis with you know massive debt burdens um and it's done nothing to address that. So I do think that that's kind of a, still a holdout um of you know northern European narrative. so there is solidarity, but it only goes so far. Um, And that could be a problem, but I think it's a big step politically.
1: Yes, I I agree. That's a a huge unanswered question. Obviously, the hardest part of that question is Italy's uh, debt burden. Um, Its debt to GDP ratio is going to be very high. It deters Italian governments from following a counter cyclical fiscal policy. And that risks keeping um, Italy stuck in depression for a long time. I think that will be a you know, big problem in coming years. And, of course, it completely blows out of the water all of the um, spreadsheets about Greece's future debt sustainabilities, which were already pretty tenuous, semi-fictional. But at this point, there's absolutely no way that, um, you know, Greece is going to be able to hit those long-run fiscal targets. Now, of course, most of Greece's debt at this point is in the form of loans from other Eurozone governments. And they don't fall due for a very long time. So, you know, Europe can carry on extending and pretending But these are questions that are going to have to be answered again in the future. Uh, So it looks like the the questions that began with the first bailout are going to rumble on for probably most of the 21st century.
4: Yeah, and I'll just say a lot will depend on how long the ECB is willing to keep borrowing costs low. As long as the ECB will do that, then debt can look sustainable because it's so incredibly cheap. But once that ends, if there is ever inflation, for example, and the ECB feels like they have to hike rates, then I think Greece and Italy are going to be in trouble.
1: And that in turn depends on how long the Germans as a country are willing to have the ECB playing that role. And what we've seen this year is that the Germans have learned a lot also about what modern central banking needs to do.
0: It, I guess if we're sitting here sort of 10 years after the first program and talking again about Greek de- sustainability in a way it answers the question about the legacy of of the, the, the first program and where Greece is. But y- Yanis, again, with a sort of specific focus on Greece uh, and looking at the, the, the overall legacy of the first program, we're talking about Greece needing maybe another decade or maybe another one beyond that given that now that a lot of the momentum is lost a bit because of the COVID impact to, to get back to where we were and during the crisis we saw uh, unemployment rising to 27.5%, incredible uh, number, uh, a quarter of the GDP being wiped away. Um, it, it, it really has left a huge impact.
3: Oh yes, yeah, certainly. And if I'm not mistaken, I think the, it's the Wall Street Journal that had reported that Merkel told somebody that this has to be so bad that no one else is going to want it. And and I think given
0: and, and we see that in in that no one wants to tap this ESM uh, credit line just because of the, the sort of toxicity surrounding it.
3: Exactly. So and especially after the numbers as you gave, clearly um, the it left big scars. And although. Over the last few years, we have managed to recover a little bit of the lost ground. Uh, the, uh, it, would, it would take about 20 years and an average growth of more than 2% to reach the trajectory that we had before the crisis. And even if we assume that this was not sustainable because of all the you know, credit-related uh, issues and the you know, euro flows that were not sustainable that we discussed, even, in, even this crisis now will set Greece back for about three to five years to go back to the levels that we were uh, at the end of last yeah. year. So uh, sometimes it's so a bit like the, you know, the, the Sisyphus task, that the, the rock keeps falling back on us and we have to keep on pushing it up. Um, but uh, like the guy said and you also outlined, the fact that we still have to discuss some of the issues that were at the start of the crisis it shows that we have not really dealt with the problem as well as we could have had.
0: Yeah. And just to finish off, Marcus, Meg, you you both visit uh, Greece regularly. I know you you, you like being here. You stay in touch with what's going on in Greece. Uh, You know, looking at it now, 10 years on, a a key takeaway, if you can sum it up in sort of one thought uh, uh, briefly. Meg, go to you first.
4: So uh, you know, I I last visited Greece before the coronavirus crisis because I have a U.S. passport. Um, <laughs> but but you know, before that, I have to say things were really better. Um, and you felt it on the streets in tavernas, talking to uh, reporters, talking to politicians. Um, so you know, Greece was starting to climb back on its feet before this current crisis hit. And as Yanni points out, it'll it'll take this will knock Greece back a few years, but. If you look at underlying fundamentals, the the fact that Greece is in current account deficit is really worrisome. Greece's debt burden is worrisome. So, um, you know, Greece has the all clear right now, but um, I do think that we're building up some of the imbalances that could could come home to roost further in the future.
0: Marcus, a quick takeaway from you. You know, I think
1: if I can um, add at least one positive thing, Uh, Greece showed an incredible resilience over the last 10 years. It went through hell, and yet it stuck to its basic commitments to parliamentary democracy at home and to a, a European vocation in its um, in its foreign policy. It stuck to EU membership and the euro, and it, it didn't lose faith in those things, uh, despite its faith being sorely tested by uh, the mission it was set. Uh, the stamina that Greek society showed was was remarkable, and I think the very fact that many Greeks feel that what they have is is fragile, that, that Greece's place in in Europe, and its its you know domestic democracy, that those things are fragile and could be lost, those actually are the reasons why, um, or they contribute to Greece's capacity to come through this ordeal intact, and I think it will come through the the latest ordeal of the pandemic intact as well.
0: Yeah, I think the resilience is a good, very important thing to highlight as we conclude this discussion. Um, Marcus, Meg, Yanis, uh, it's been a very interesting and I would even say enjoyable discussion, even if the subject matter has been uh, not enjoyable at all. And, uh, you know, going back to revisit some things, you know, it it really did uh, feel painful. But I'm very glad we could come together and have this discussion. Thank you very much for your time.
4: Thanks for having
0: us. Pleasure. Thank you. So, that brings us to the end of the 10th episode of The Agora. As I mentioned at the start, this will be our last episode of the series. We aim to be back in September after we've all had a break. We definitely need one after delving back into those painful days of 2010. If there are episodes of The Agora that you've missed and you'd like to catch up with, they'll be available on ACAST, Spotify and Apple Podcasts throughout the coming weeks. Please do rate us and send us your feedback. I'd like to thank all the guests we've had during the previous shows for taking the time to share their insight. Likewise, I want to thank my Macropolis colleagues, Yanis Mozakis, Amira Gill, Georgi Anaku and Alexander Buduri for dropping in. Remember that you can find out more about our work at www.macropolis.gr. Also, much appreciation goes to our producer, Phoebe Fronista, for her tireless efforts during these uh, very difficult days. Lastly, thanks to everyone who's been listening and supporting our work. We genuinely appreciate it. That's it from me. Until next time, we leave you with our theme tune from the Burgundy Grapes. Bye-bye.